The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'll be talking with Alex Nunns about the British Labour Party. You can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Alex Nunns is the author of The Candidate, Jeremy Corbyn's Improbable Path to Power, published by All Books and the winner of the Bread and Roses Award for Radical Publishing. He's also the co-editor of Tweets from Tahrir, Egypt's Revolution in the Words of the People Who Made It, and he's the political correspondent for Red Pepper. I was sort of wondering if you could, you know, I was thinking that in my mind you're very much sort of identified with, because of writing The Candidate, that you're very sort of identified with Labour and with Corbyn and, and the Corbyn moment. And so I'd sort of realised that I don't know a huge amount about your politics before the 2015 Labour leadership contest. So could you say something about sort of your political background, how you felt about the Labour Party and also what you thought Corbyn's initial prospects were when he first announced his candidacy? Sure. Well, I was actually a political correspondent for Red Pepper magazine um, for quite a long time, which was actually there was I was supposed to be the political editor. The the editor, Hilary Hilary Wainwright, wanted me to be political editor, basically to make me write more articles and do more work um, on a kind of volunteer basis. Um, but I managed to resist that. I managed to resist promotion and uh, remained as political correspondent. But that meant I was writing um, articles about the Labour left, as well as about the Greens and about respect and um, various other things. But um, but actually, that the work I did, kind of writing about the Labour left, was really really useful for the candidate because that's um, first of all where I kind of spoke to a lot of the people who are now you know, central to the Corbyn project. I interviewed people like John Landsman, for example, um, back then. And also, you know, I, that gave me a kind of knowledge of the workings of the Labour left and um, who was who. So that was essential. And the articles at the time were titled things like what became of the Labour left. You know, it was kind of an mm. investigation into why the Corbyn part of the Labour Party, or really then it was kind of considered the John McDonnell part of the Labour Party, was uh, so weak and such a shadow of its former self. Um, and then I wrote about when Ed Miliband became leader, I wrote articles about whether that would um, mark a change for the Labour Party under Ed Miliband, which it did. But it was a kind of ambiguous change. Um, and other than that, I was also doing, um, in 2011, I edited, co-edited a book uh, called Tweets from Takaria about the Egyptian revolution with a friend of mine who's an Egyptian, half Egyptian, um, Nadia Ardor, and that was, I think it's the first book, or at least it might even be the only book, actually, that was essentially entirely based on tweets, which sounds like it'd be really rubbish, but when you read it, it's really good. <laughs> it actually tells the story <laughs> and kind of, um, it makes you feel like you're there because you're reading real-time reports from Takaria Square over the 18 days when they brought down Hosni Mubarak. So that, I'm really proud of that book. It's, it's really good. 
Um, and that kind of got me involved with, you know, lots of Egyptians and went to Egypt and so on. Um, I've also been, um, I was kind of a revolution tourist for a while. I went to Greece for a bit and reported for a pepper from Greece. Um, so that's kind of what I was doing essentially. And I was also working for a campaign group called Keep Our NHS Public, campaigning against privatisation of the NHS. Um, for a long time I was doing that. So that's my kind of campaignery activisty um, bit. And uh, had you always been broadly sympathetic to, to the Labour Party? I mean, I'm just thinking about my own politics. You know, I was someone who had no faith whatsoever in the Labour Party um, being able to transform itself. I always thought of it as sort of irredeemably reformist, um, you know, at best. And uh, yeah, so the, the entire Corbyn thing was, you know, at the start of it, a huge, uh, a huge surprise to me. You know, had, had you always been sort of quite sympathetic to the Labour Party? Had you had sort of faith in the possibility of its transformation? Uh, it was difficult to be sympathetic to the Labour Party when it was um, prosecuted in the Iraq war. Um, and when it was, when Blair was bringing in market reforms to the NHS, which I was involved in campaigning against. Um, I mean, the fact that I'd been to a Labour Party conference and so on, and that I'd, um, I knew that there were left-wing people in, in the Labour Party, which, you know, a lot of people outside the Labour Party didn't really have an awareness of necessarily. They mm. thought it had been so thoroughly Blairised. But I knew that there was a left in the Labour Party, but I would be... I can't um, exaggerate and say that I foresaw that it would make a dramatic resurgence and <laughs> seize control of the party machinery, um, because I probably thought that it was not likely, at least in, unless there was some kind of big shift in the context of politics, which of course there was. The 2008 crash was that shift. It's just that it took a long time to work its way through um, into, well, I mean, a long time, not in the in the scale of the whole of history, but it still, you know, it took a few years to work its way through into the politics of the Labour Party. And that's really the, um, the essential thing that made the rise of Jeremy Corbyn possible. But it certainly didn't look like that when Blair was in charge um, when Brown took over, it looked like, you know, people were hopeful there might be a return to a more kind of social democratic um, uh, standpoint, but it didn't happen. Brown didn't really um, have any kind of distinguishing um, things to offer. Um, so, so yeah, so, I mean, I thought I was probably more sympathetic uh, than most people outside the Labour Party who just thought it was completely written off. Um but I wasn't. I didn't expect the Corbyn surge. No. Do you think, in retrospect, the the election of Ed Miliband looks a lot more significant than it did at the time? I mean, I think there was certainly from you know the bit of the left that I sort of belonged to. There was you know huge scepticism and cynicism, and uh, you know I think you know I certainly didn't sort of recognise. I think at the time that the the fact that Labour had moved to the left, even if it was incrementally, was actually quite a significant thing. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a significant thing because of the reaction of the Blairites, apart from anything else. I mean, they absolutely lost it when Ed Miliband uh, was elected Labour leader. They, you know, I quote them in, in The Candidate saying things like, it's a gothic horror um, and, you know, the worst nightmare they could imagine. Um, and it was true that Ed Miliband, especially in his, you know, in his campaign, he, he definitely tacked to the left. And then in his first conference speech as leader, um, he... he you know, said markets shouldn't be sacrosanct, um, criticised Israel, um, talked about civil liberties. It was, you know, quite a kind of radical speech. And he did have those 
instincts and, and, and it was a significant break from New Labour. Um, and also, you know, um, I knew from people like John Landsman and so on about how the membership was shifting because the left was securing um, its, you know, best results in, in decades in the internal NEC elections in that time, in the early Miliband period. Um, so, yeah, so there was, it was obviously something... The, the Labour Party was obviously doing something different. But then in about, well, a couple of years in um, to Miliband's term as leader, basically Ed Balls won a battle and shifted them into an anti uh, an austerity light position, sorry, um, saying, uh, he said, I think we have to accept all of these cuts that the Tories are making and um, kind of just shut himself off from the anti-austerity movement, which had really kind of gained momentum since 2010, especially in 2011, 2011 when you had Occupy and you had a giant TUC demonstration, 400,000 people, which Ed Miliband spoke at. And it seemed like there was the beginnings of... Um, and, and kind of the possibility of a move to the left, or at least an association between the Labour Party and the left. I spoke to Peter Hayne, the former cabinet minister, and he said that the Labour Party should be the fulcrum of the wider progressive left. But then he kind of um, tempered that by saying, but I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to support um, crazy strikes or something like that. And you think, well, people don't go on strike, you know, just at the drop of a hat. So there was always that... Uh, ambiguity and that duality to the whole thing um and i think what happened over those five years of ed miliband being in charge is that they became ed miliband himself and the leadership in general became gradually more cautious um adopted this austerity light position and really kind of cut themselves off from that anti-austerity movement and upset the unions you had in the end you had um, lemon klusky talking about the possibility of a brand new party being formed called the workers party um, because Labour was going into the 2015 election promising more austerity. So um, I think it, it was... Uh, I, I did perceive it as a big shift, but I was also disappointed that it wasn't followed through um, over those five years. It's wonderful to think that the Blairites perceived Ed Miliband's election as the worst possible thing that could happen to them, um, <laughs> given, given what happened later. Regarding the Blairites, so I think one of the things I found interesting reading the book was quite how marginal the Blairites have been just in, you know, in terms of their numbers, you know, that they've never been this kind of uh, very dominant and very large sector of the party. Mm. They were dominant in the sense that they were able to present a, a project that other bits of the Labour Party would acquiesce in because, you know, they, they had a project that seemed viable and that could win win elections. Could you maybe say something about different divisions within the PLP? Because I quite often feel like looking on social media, I'll see people on the left criticising PLP Blairites. And mm. a lot of the time, the people they're talking to, they're not Blairites, they're from other sectors of, of the party. But there, yeah. there does seem to be this lack of understanding of, of what the different factions within the Labour Party are, and just quite how marginal the Blairites have, have become lately. Yeah, sure. I mean, on the right of the Labour Party, there's two bits. There's the traditional right, which is the kind of Tom Watson part, which is based in the trade unions and is social democratic. And that's probably the bigger part of the Labour right in Parliament, I mean, actually everywhere. Um, and they don't really disagree with much of Corbyn's domestic agenda. You know, they've, they've kind of got an, an inbuilt hostility to the left after years of perceiving them as the enemy. And they absolutely disagree on foreign policy because they have a almost kind of theological attachment to the Atlantic alliance with the US and um, supporting Israel. Um, but they don't, so, so on that, they're completely, you know, at loggerheads. And that's why the sharpest divisions in the Labour Party come over foreign policy and nuclear defence and so on. 
Um, but on domestic policy, they they're social democrats, so they don't really disagree with much of what Corbyn's putting forward, which is um, obviously radical in the context of UK politics. But it's, it's basically, you know, the, the manifesto in 2017 was essentially a social democratic manifesto. It wasn't um, uh, supremely radical. Um, and so that's, but they're the bigger part. Then the Blairites are kind of like a different species, really. They're they're genuine liberals. Um, you know, Tony Blair said um, he was the leader of, effectively, he said he was the leader of a party he wished didn't exist because he thought that the split between the Labour Party, between the Labour movement and the Liberals that led to the formation of the Labour Party was a mistake, a historic mistake. So, um, so that group, which is really in Parliament, you're talking about kind of 30, 40 MPs, um, is not that big, but they're ideologically very committed and they have um, great access to the media and they're really good at mouthing off whether they're complaining or um, just pro- trying to project an image of their own kind of dominance. So you, from the media coverage, you get the sense that they're preeminent. And in the Labour Party, you know, the, when Liz Kendall stood for leader, she got 4.5% of the vote. So in the Labour Party, they're tiny. Now, there might have been some other Blairites who voted for Yvette Cooper or or maybe even Andy Burnham because they thought they had a better chance of being Corbyn, but it's not that many because those those two candidates didn't get very many votes in 2015 either in that leadership race. So um, Liz Kendall's result of 4.5% is probably not that unrepresentative. So those kind of really committed neoliberal Blairites essentially um, are a minority um, in the party and they are something quite new in Labour Party history because they didn't really exist in the party before Blair, before 1994. Um, and you're right, when people are attacking MPs on the right of the Labour Party, they, they have a tendency to call them all Blairites, um, when actually it's not accurate. And then as well as those two groups on the right, you've got a big lump of MPs who are just kind of in the middle. And lots of them thought that Jeremy Corbyn was bad because they thought he was unelectable. And the fact that um, he got 40% in a general election probably convinced quite a lot of them that they were wrong about that, and they are also not so, not so, um, so far in disagreement with Corbyn's domestic agenda. So um, they're kind of the people who will go go where the wind blows, kind of thing. And then you have a small group on the left, kind of like a mirror of the of the Blairites, really, but probably slightly smaller. So um, the properly committed left MPs and the um, wiser and um, more daring uh, soft left MPs who basically. Uh, form the shadow cabinet and um, Corbyn supporters. So that's the composition, I think. Are you at all surprised by how resilient a lot of the opposition to Corbyn within the PLP seems to be? Did you expect that there would be more of those MPs, you know, perhaps who weren't the most vehement critics of Corbyn that would sort of come alongside when they saw that Corbyn was electorally viable? Or is this more or less the situation you, you expected us to be in at this point? I think the opposition's probably less than I would have expected. I mean, when mm. he was elected, you know, he got he got 35 nominations to stand for leader in 2015. But of those, you know, no more than 20 and probably slightly less than 20 were people who actually supported him. The rest were people who were giving him a chance because they had they thought he had no chance of winning. Um, but they wanted him to stand for various reasons. So um, given that that's how little solid support Jeremy Corbyn had in the PLP... I probably would have expected the opposition to be bigger and often there have been crunch moments where you thought, you know, from the just the image that you get in the media, you'd think that the, the whole PLP is going to rebel and it hasn't happened. The first one was December 2015 
when there was David Cameron called a vote on bombing Syria and there was lots of kind of talk in the media that you know hundreds maybe more than a hundred maybe more than half of the parliamentary Labour Party was going to defy Corbyn to vote for this bombing and then Corbyn just asked the Labour membership to email he sent out an email saying what's your views should we do this and you know got an overwhelming response of thousands of people saying don't do it don't bomb Syria and that according to press reports genuinely influenced um, lots of these MPs to kind of switch and in the end the rebellion it was you know reasonably big but it was much smaller than I think it was 60 something I'm not entirely sure but it was much smaller than um, was anticipated and then lots of these rebellions that have happened since are very it's just the same people you just read the lists and it's all the same people and you know there's maybe 40 of them kind of 30 really irreconcilable ones plus 10 others who might come along for the ride on this that this or that issue um and that's that's kind of it and and they're not they're ideologically that hardcore is ideologically opposed to jeremy corbyn um it, it's not that they just don't like him or that they think that it's a wrong turn for the labor party electorally or they they actually have different politics so they think they're being principled in rebelling all the time um obviously the membership kind of thinks it's disruptive but that's, um, you know, I don't think that there's much scope for whittling that down much more. One thing they have been critical about has been the um, the recent local election results. Um, although I suppose, you know, in line with what you're saying, it was striking to me sort of how small scale and kind of just irrelevant those protests seemed. You know, it, it seemed very much a kind of a guardian phenomenon, you know, the, the, the broadcast media to some extent, but not something that particularly resonated and certainly not something that seemed any kind of a, a threat to the leadership. What do you make of that um, critique that's that's come from, from the media and parts of the PLP? The, the members of the PLP who are on the right, who are still committed, you know, haven't checked out of the Labour Party, um, but opposed Jeremy Corbyn, must have been pulling their hair out when the opposition... Um, the attack on Labour's local election results was expressed by David Blunkett saying they had to return to New Labour and Alistair Campbell going around the, the TV studios uh, attacking the party because that's, you know, that's that's really not helping um, the right to the Labour Party's uh, prospects internally with the membership because it just, you know, that just says everything. That just says it's um, that they're so vehemently opposed to the new direction that the members have chosen. Not It's not... You know, it's not a conspiracy and it's not a coup. The members have twice ele- elected Jeremy Corbyn, but these, you know, voices from the New Labour past are so um, viciously opposed to that direction that they will take any opportunity to rubbish the party, even, you know, rubbishing the efforts of, um, which is what they implicitly did, rubbishing the efforts of people who have gone knocking on doors, trying their best to do well in local elections and actually secured in many, in most places, half-decent results. And then to have that all trashed in the media by by these voices from the new Labour past must be, you know, is is just frustrating. So so that there's a kind of tactical ineptitude from um, that part of the Labour right, which never ceases to mystify me. And it's been on display ever mm. since Corbyn stood, you know, in, in the 2015 leadership campaign, you had Tony Blair coming out, making three separate interventions, um, trying to say that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn will be a disaster. Every time it provoked the opposite response, you know, it, it created a boost of volunteers signing up for the Corbyn campaign. Corbyn went up in the polls in the internal election. Um, it kind of galvanised people on social media. Um, and he didn't seem to get this. And other Blairites did the same thing in, in 2015. They were all doing it. 
Um, and it was isn't, all completely there, um, counterproductive. Isn't there a case of that? I forget if it's if it's Blair or a sort of um, an anti-Corbyn uh, journalist who, in their sort of their final appeal, you know, effectively actually says something like, "Maybe this is counterproductive, but I'm going to say it anyway." Blair did that. Yeah, his his yeah. his third um, his third intervention was an op-ed in the Observer, um, in which it's kind of you know it's it's kind of piteous. You know, it's just it's saying, "Will this make any difference? Probably not." Um, and in fact, it might even help him. And you think, oh, what are you doing? And then he goes on to call uh, Labour members. Um, he says they're living in Alice in Wonderland world and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know. It was really, it was just, it's a really strange lack of self-awareness, I think. Um, so so that's, I think, one reason why this attack on the local election results have, hasn't perhaps been as effective as it might have been. The other reason is that statistically, um, there are lots of things which point to it being a reasonably good election in they got you know 70 uh, the best sorry the best result in london local elections are in london since 1971 now people say well that's just london which is true but still if the definition of failure um has changed in a year from what it was after the 2017 may local elections when um a prominent anti-corbyn journalist wrote that corbyn was leading labor to oblivion based on the results to this year the local election results resulting in Labour's best performance in London since 1971, and that's failure for Corbyn, then um, the definition of failure has changed dramatically in that time. So um, so that's that's kind of one reason why that's not working. I think the, the my analysis of the local election results is that in some places, um, such as Derby, they were bad, um, there are specific, but then it, it's it's mixed results because there are specific examples like Derby where the results were bad, but then there are other examples where they were quite good. You know, even outside London, even in places that voted to leave um, the EU. So it's kind of a, a mess, but still, overall, the consensus is that Labour essentially repeated its twenty seventeen general election performance in terms of the level of support in the local election. Perhaps moved forwards a bit in terms of the projection of the, you know, when the BBC did that thing by John Curtis projecting the number of seats that um, the vote would mean. It's obviously a bit nonsensical because people aren't voting in a general election. But anyway, um, it turned out that Labour would be the largest party. And on the projected national vote share, it was Labour and the Tories were level, whereas obviously in the general election, the Tories were two and a half points ahead. So Labour seems to kind of be level pegging with the Tories. So to repeat, I think the key thing about it is that to repeat that level of support, that kind of 2017 level of support in a local election um, should be really encouraging for Labour when you consider that it didn't have its two secret weapons, which were young voters who don't vote in local elections, yet in the general election last year, 60% of the under 30s voted Labour, which is completely astronomical and unbelievable. And the other secret weapon is previous non-voters in 2015 in 2017, sorry, 2 million of Labour's voters hadn't voted in 2015. They were not previous non-voters. Those 2 million people are, again, much less likely to vote in a local election than a general election. So the demographics of the local elections are not well suited to Labour's current um, position and to Corbyn's kind of style of politics. And the other element of that is that Jeremy Corbyn in the general election was offering or promising to cha- uh, transform society. It was, you know, it was a radical vision of how society could be completely different. And you can't translate that very easily to a local election 
because you know the local council is not going to kind of lead the revolution so um so that element of it's cut off and there's also the problems with labor and local government the fact that that's still a stronghold of the of the right of the party um and there wasn't there wasn't really there's not not really much that labor had to say about what they were going to do about austerity and local government when it's being imposed by central government um so given all those things um i think it's you know it was a pretty decent result to secure that level of support which people think analysts said was equivalent to the 2017 general election yet without exploiting the particular political dynamics that make Corbynism made Corbynism a success in the 2017 election um, then there's the Tory side of this as well I mean people say well um, Labour should have done better but obviously the, it's you know there's a there's a relationship there and if the Tories are still if the Tory votes holding up then obviously it makes Labour's vote look uh, relatively worse. And the Tory vote, um, they absorbed, in 2017 in the general election, they absorbed literally 50% of UKIP supporters, previous UKIP voters, In the judging by the opinion polls ever since they've retained them. And in the local elections, we saw the pattern that they've retained them again, and they inherited the bulk of previously UKIP seats. So they, they got seats from UKIP, where UKIP's just vanished, essentially, except for a couple of seats. And yet, the Tories still made net losses. So it's not, you know, it wasn't a great performance from them. But still, their vote held up um, more than you probably expect in midterm because of this fact. And I think what, what's at the root of that is this polarisation and with, Bre uh, with Brexit playing into it. So if you're a person who wants to leave the EU and you don't like immigrants, then who are you going to vote for but the Tories? If UKIP don't exist anymore, you know, that that's... I think a really big reason why the Tory vote's holding up. The other reason is economic polarisation, which is expressed as um, a difference between different ages. If you don't, if you own your own house, and you, the value of your house is going up, you don't want a Labour government to come in and solve the the housing crisis. If you're young and you don't own your own house and you haven't got any prospects of um, advancing your kind of life aspirations, then you're going to perceive the system's not set up for you, so you're going to vote Labour. So that's the kind of age split. And as I said, you know, when you apply that to a local election where young people don't tend to vote and old people do tend to vote, um, you'd expect the Tories to do better. I suppose one sort of worrying thing about the, the you know, relative parity between Labour and the Tories is that it does seem to make the prospects for Labour winning an outright majority look tricky, at least. Potentially, there's another election called and, and the dynamics that you're talking about, you know, that ability to kind of draw on Labour's sort of movementist politics and the, the rallies and, and that sort of thing that we saw and the mobilisation of, of social media as well, um, you know, could potentially lead to an even more impressive result than last time around. But I suppose there is that, that fear that uh, the, the polarisation might make it impossible for Labour to win an outright majority. And given the divisions within the PLP... You know, it does raise questions about how how quickly a Labour government could be sort of neutered by the by the situation. Um, you know, under pressure from uh, the media and, and and capital and so on, and also from parts of the Labour Party who, you know, as, as you've described, are, are really not on board. And also, I suppose, you know, I think about some some soft left. MPs who, you know, some of them seem quite well-meaning, but, you know, I absolutely wouldn't trust them in any sort of crisis uh, situation. Um, yeah, I mean, first on the electoral side of that, I guess whether the, um, whether the Tory coalition of voters holds together depends 
largely on what happens with Brexit, I think, and, and when the election happens. And I think predicting, um, as most of the media seem determined to do, you know, for example, Pete Corbyn, like, I mean, they can shout Pete, Cor- Pete Corbyn as much as they want, but um, it, it's evidently not the case in the sense that there's obviously, as I described about the local elections, there's obviously more potential than Labour displayed in the local elections. Um, but it, but coming back to the Tories, if if the say Brexit happens and um, they betray, they're perceived to have betrayed hard leavers because Theresa May wins the battle to sell out the hard Brexiters, which is basically, I think, what she perceives her historic role as. Um, then you know that UKIP contingent in their vote could break off. Um, if they do Brexit and it turns into a disaster, their vote could collapse. If there's an economic uh, recession, their vote could collapse. So they're, they're co- people often talk about Labour's coalition of voters as being fragile because all these people came out of nowhere in 2017 and will young people vote again and so on, which are all valid questions. But nobody ever talks about how um, vulnerable the Tory coalition of voters is to um, Brexit disappointment. And I think that's I think that's quite a big factor. In terms of if Labour then won that election and then... Uh, got into a situation where there were tight votes, you know, if it was a if it was a hung parliament or if they had a narrow majority, then yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it would be a big problem. I mean, John Woodcock, the Labour MP for Barrow and Furness, he said on the day that Theresa May called the general election, he did a video in which he said um, to his constituents directly, "I will not, I will never vote to make Jeremy Corbyn this country's prime minister," and yet somehow he was allowed to stand as a Labour candidate basically, because when the NEC discussed it, Kezia Dugdale, leader of the Scottish Labour Party, and Tom Watson actually phoned into the meeting to to defend him. So um, so if that's how he felt then, there's no rational reason to think that he's changed or that when the crunch comes in a Labour government and there's a tight vote, you know, on getting, you know, some big financial policy through or, you know, anything that's, that, that's basically a kind of confidence issue in the government... You know, John Woodcock's going to vote to bring down that Labour government. I've, I've no doubt of that. And without any kind of accountability mechanism in place for Labour MPs, such as mandatory reselection, there's no kind of disincentive at the moment for them not to do that. I think, other than the kind of opprobrium of their own memberships. But you can imagine what it's going to be like in that in that atmosphere. There would just be an atmosphere of crisis in if that um, scenario comes to pass. So yeah, um, it's a it's it's difficult to um, look forward to those those kind of moments. And I think a Corbyn government would face just an unbelievable onslaught of opposition from the press and from, you know, every kind of ideological angle you can think of. Um, but then, you know, so far the Corbyn phenomenon has always exceeded expectations. People have expected it to collapse and fail multiple times, and it hasn't yet. So um, there's, there's still reasons to be optimistic. So one of the the things we've seen with with the uh, the Corbyn moment, so to speak, has been that uh, during during elections that Corbyn you know seems to do very well. There's this kind of capacity that the Labour leadership have to draw on the membership and to generate lots of lots of excitement, um, and that seems to kind of fall away in between those elections. And, and as you say, that's hard to recreate during the the recent local elections. I just wonder if you if you you think there are ways in which Labour can sort of maintain that sort of momentum in between those periods. Yeah, I think this is one of the kind of characteristic features of the Corbyn movement, which is a shame, which is that um, 
it's fantastic in a crisis. If Jeremy Corbyn's threatened for the leadership or if there's a general election, suddenly, you know, there's an upsurge of activity and um, and it becomes extremely powerful, you know, obviously by far the most powerful force within the Labour Party now. And as the general election showed, a powerful force in society as well, almost capable of um, pulling off the most astonishing general election victory ever if it had managed to do that. But um, even so, it still pulled off the most astonishing surge in uh, support for a political party in British history. So um, so that's great. And But then in between times, when the action becomes more remote, when it all goes back to Westminster and, you know, you get into an arena where the left is weakest in Parliament and also in the media where the left is extremely weak, um, then the activity can kind of die down a bit and um, it can seem like uh, people get demoralised and so on. Um, I think that, I mean, to an extent, I think I probably was more worried about that this time last year or actually, you know, a few months and a year ago at the start of 2017 when, if you remember, we had a few really miserable months for the Labour left where you had the Article 50 vote um, go through, which was the first one where, first kind of time when there seemed to be a split within the, the Corbyn supporting base itself, although it wasn't as serious, anywhere near as serious as commentators suggested. And then there was also the, the row in, within Momentum, um, which, you know, ended up with them changing their constitution in a kind of um, arbitrary way. And so, and all this stuff was going on and the polls were really bad. And then there was the loss of Copeland in the by-election. They were one stoke, but it lost Copeland. There was real obstruction, sabotage and leaking from the party machine, you know, internal canvassing data from the Copeland election, by-election was leaked, which showed that Labour was on course to lose, which was true, but um, by leaking it to the Telegraph, you're making that more likely, obviously, and that was done by somebody in Labour HQ. So there was all this stuff, um, all these causes for demoralisation. It did feel like, you know, it was going downhill. And then um, after Theresa May called the election, there were the local elections first when Labour did badly and there was lots of talk about how members hadn't been out canvassing and um, there there was a kind of a low level of activity and then that all turned around for the general election um, and people did get involved and that kind of kick that momentum (laughs) to use the word um, from that general election does seem to have been sustained to a greater degree than it had been you know, than, than, it, than existed previously. So um, that year, the 2017 conference had a majority of left delegates, 71%, um, which means that people went and voted for them at their meetings. Left candidates started winning positions as officers and then went right through to this um, year's local elections. You had huge uh, mobilisations of activists, um, especially with the kind of unseat campaigns that Momentum and Owen Jones did where people were going to places like Wandsworth and so on and Trafford and uh, in their hundreds to knock on doors. So so there are kind of actually encouraging signs that um, the movement is less kind of peak and trough, that it is establishing itself on a more um, secure and permanent footing as people kind of naturally work their way through the Labour Party structures, which are really complicated and um, off-putting at first. And so it's not surprising that it should take a while to do that. Um, but even so, I mean, it's true that that will be a, it's a potential problem in government if people get demoralised by 
um, bad news by you know the media narrative and so on, because there's no doubt that um, when Labour's in government, there's going to be an awful lot of um, attempts to demoralise them um, mm. by you know every single little thing will be made into a crisis. But having said that, I mean some of the biggest leaps forward for the Corbyn phenomenon have come in the moments of greatest adversity. And there's going to be a lot of adversity. So it's that's the kind of fuel, you know, the, often the media attacks, depends which one, depends what the issue is. It doesn't, didn't, didn't happen with anti-Semitism for complicated reasons to do with the fact that there was, you know, um, a genuine problem. But, um, for example, with the Czech spy story, um, when the media decided that Jeremy Corbyn had been a spy for Czechoslovakia, um, that kind of thing, that galvanises members. So adversity is a fuel for that to, to kind of guard against that tendency to go into a lull. I also think that the leadership um, is best when it's being um, most daring. For example, when um, when JP Morgan, the bank, said that um, a Labour government would be a bigger threat than Brexit, I think, and Jeremy Corbyn did a video direct you know, on social, put out through social media saying uh, the banks say we're a threat and they're right. And that's that's kind of, that kind of um, bold, direct messaging is when I think the leadership's at its best when it's doing that, that tack. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's really rambling, kind of round in circles answer. But um, I think, I think that it's get my, yeah, overall, I think it's getting better. And I also think that there are opportunities in crises. Just on the, the question of the media for a moment, so one thing I've been a bit surprised by has been the kind of um, the resilience of the opposition to Corbyn in, well, particularly The Guardian, really, which, I mean, it's sort of surprising to me sort of how few kind of uh, pro-Corbyn commentators they have at this point of the situation. You know, I sort of uh, probably foolishly thought they might, you know, uh, try and ref- reflect on you know the degree of support that Corbyn has within this um, our society, especially given that that you know so much of the um, print press is uh, conservative supporting, are you surprised by that? Do you, do you, did you expect to see more of a of a shift, especially after the 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 election? I think there's an internal battle going on in the Guardian. Um, I think there are signs that there are people who are trying to shift it. Certainly in the general election, there were people behind the scenes in the Guardian who were trying to argue for a different stance and they won in the end about a week or 10 days before the election when the guardian did its editorial for corbyn which is one of the most remarkable 180 degree turns in history after completely attacking him um you know every day forever and then they suddenly say vote corbyn um he's injected excitement and inspired a whole new bunch of people and you think well yeah but no thanks to you um so so there i think it's not um it's not that it's completely, you know, a lost cause. I think there are people who are trying to fight for that, but they don't seem to be winning. And certainly it's, I mean, you know, in my book, in The Candidate, I analysed in great detail The Guardian's coverage of the 2015 leadership contest. Um, and that's actually published on the Vara Read Media as an extract. People can um, look it up if they look up Alex Nunn's Guardian, Navara. Um, they'll find it. Um and yeah, there's no doubt when you go through it that, that the Guardian as an institution um, decided that Corbyn was out of bounds. Um, initially, it, it thought it was fine for him to be in the in the leadership race, but then as soon as it became clear that he could win, it, it was, you know, all of the big star columnists, bar Owen Jones, Zoe Williams, George Monbiot, Seamus Milne, 
were essentially lined up to fire every bit of ammunition they had at Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, there's just an outpouring of um, hostile column pieces and hostile framing of news stories and so on. And it just, you know, the thing that critics of The Guardian always say is that it basically polices the left, that it polices what's acceptable on the kind of liberal left um, and draws the line, draws the touchline beyond which, mixing metaphors, but draws the touchline beyond which, you know, um, left-wing politics is unacceptable, is out of bounds. And you could see that becoming completely crystal clear in the 2015 leadership contest that Jeremy Corbyn was out of bounds and that the other three candidates for leadership were inbounds. You know, the differences between them didn't really matter. Um, they, were, they were okay, they were fine, because they were um, going to sustain the status quo of the Labour Party, essentially. Um, so it was a remarkably vivid demonstration of that. And that kind of that kind of institutional gravity, I think, is difficult to shift. And I imagine that there are people in the Guardian who probably would want to shift it, but it's a big organisation with a whole bunch of very ideologically committed journalists who hate Jeremy Corbyn and they hate the left and they're fighting and they'll do what they can to stop it. And people originally thought Kath Viner, the editor, was going to be, you know, a leftist kind of revolution there, but that doesn't seem to be happening. But, you know, um, but there you go. They're still... I mean, it, it confuses me that I, I agree with you that you'd have expected them to do a more overt pivot um, than they have just for self-interest, just for their for their readership. Because basically, forty percent of the population voted for the Labour Party last year, and the the poll by YouGov of newspaper readers and their votes shows that over I think seventy percent or more of Guardian readers voted Labour. So this is their readership that's supporting. Jeremy Corbyn led Labour Party, so it is. It is. Um, it is odd. <laughs> One thing that seems to happen, sort of every, it feels like it's every three weeks or so. There's an announcement of a prospective new centrist party of some some form or other being launched. I just wonder what your view is on these kind of um, attempts to create a, a new centrist party. Do, do you think anything like that would be viable? Do you think a significant part of the PLP or, or even uh, Labour voters would be attracted to it? I don't think it would be viable, but I don't think that's the point. I think um, the point of a new centrist party, the fact that this supposed new centrist party has got £50 million worth of funding, which is a lot of money, um, you know, for example, just to put that into context, I think the Tories spent 17 or £18 million on the general election last year and Labour £13 million or something like that. So to have £50 million... Um, is a substantial amount of money for a political party, if it's true. Um, and they're not those people who have given that fifty million pounds are not doing it because they desperately believe in centrism. They're doing it to stop a Corbyn-led Labour government. Um, and where that party puts its resources when it comes to elections will not be, you know, will not be necessarily where they have the best chance of winning. Um, well, you know, even if they have to challenge a Tory or a Lib Dem, they'll. Uh, put their resources where they're going to challenge Labour. So even if it just knocks off a few percent from Labour's polling, then it could have a decisive impact on the general election. That's why I think that there are people who are determined that that will happen. I think it's kind of, you know, one of the lines of defence, if you like, of the establishment and the state, probably, um, against the prospect of a Corbyn government. The problem they've got, I think, is that there aren't very many Labour MPs who are um, kamikaze enough to want to 
you know, leave the party now and join it. They probably, you know, they they could probably get a few. They could probably get, you know, John Woodcock or whatever. But um, as for kind of substantial figures, I mean, for a start, the left is pretty, the right, sorry, of the Labour Party is pretty thin on the ground when it comes to substantial figures compared to the past. You know, when the SDP set up, you had, you know, Shirley Williams and Roy Jenkins and, you know, these big figures to do it. And the right hasn't got anything equivalent to that now. You know, Chaka Ramona is not equivalent to that. Um... But secondly, you know, it's it's something that they can only do if their career is effectively over. So if they think they're going to get deselected um, and they want to go out in a blaze of glory with a load of press attention, even though they know that they're going to lose um, and they're going to have to find another job, then maybe they'll do it um, closer to the election, some of them. But for any of them who, who kind of um, are a bit more cautious and value their job and their constituents and so on, then, you know, there are kind of reasons for staying in the Labour Party for them, even if there's no imminent prospect of uh, the party reverting to their kind of politics. So um, I think my hunch would be that there will probably be some attempt before the next election to found some kind of centrist party. I'm not sure how successful it will be, because although it will have the media on side, it might not have the kind of politicians to front it to make it successful. Um, but I do consider it to be um, a threat to a Labour government. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. And if you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.